Bucharest is my city. I can't stand it, but I also love it deeply. It's hard for me to imagine uh, living somewhere else. It is a city in which each historical layer fights with all the others. It's a city made of superposition. Every layer came and tried to to undo the others and then make its own perfect world. And none of them succeeded. This is the third episode of the Disobedient Buildings podcast, an Arts and Humanities Research Council funded project at the University of Oxford. Our focus is on the everyday lives of the people living in three European countries, the UK, Romania and Norway. My name is Gabriela Nicolescu and today I take you to Bucharest where I speak with Ștefan Gienciulescu, editor of Zeppelin magazine and lecturer at Ion Mincu University of Architecture and Urbanism in Bucharest talking about different historical layers of the city, about impoverished owners and the ghettoization of southern parts of Bucharest, and about cars, traffic and pollution. Zeppelin is a platform for architecture and design and uh, and the city. It's built up starting from the magazine, which is which we started uh, more than 20 years ago. It was called differently then. Then we started also to do exhibitions and research works and books and interventions in the city. So now it's extremely broad. It ranges from architecture to uh, to research, to curatorship, all the other things that you can imagine around architecture. It's also, it's a small team. And then we are very much into collaboration. Most of our recent projects are done in collaboration with uh, other institutions, organizations, uh, people, and uh, and so on. So what kind of stories do you say about Bucharest? But my stories about Bucharest are always about the layers. We are very much into talking about history. We felt frustrated already 15-20 years ago that the magazine is always about the contemporary and the now. For us it's important to talk about history, but not about history very much in an academic way, but about history in a productive way. A lot of the things that we publish and uh, most of my architectural work, which is not about design and exhibition, is about older buildings and what you can do with them, even if they're not heritage buildings and even if they're not protected. Something very important happened at the beginning of the 16th century, which was that uh, the Sultan, which was the sovereign of also of uh, Valachia, which was the principality of which Bucharest was the capital, forbid city walls. And this was very important because the city did not evolve like every typical European city, which is very compact and dense in its walls and then grows a little bit. Uh, it, it developed from starts uh, freely like cities do today. Even in the beginning of the 19th century, the city was extremely large. It was larger than Barcelona at that time. Uh, with very different densities, a very heavy core, and then a lot of very important streets that uh, that went into the territory, and in between them, a rural area. So not the typical city and then the countryside, or, or the city, the suburb, the countryside, but a mixture of city and countryside all the time. And then you have the, the development in the 19th century, which is the 20th century, which had to deal with it. And then, of course, you have socialism and you have especially Ceausescu. And the thing about Ceausescu was that he wanted to raise down completely the existing city. That was his project. What he did was not raise big chunks of land, except 
for the most important part of the projects, but he would actually build new boulevards, cut new boulevards or enlarge the existing ones and then build rows of uh, concrete blocks of flats. And the idea was to go further and further in the, into the territory behind them, but he wanted to have the, the vista, the Potemkin thing immediately. So now if everybody walks or drives through Bucharest on the main streets, he would think it's a city completely done in the 70s and 80s. And actually in Bucharest, you are always on a big boulevard, maybe everything is compressed, everything is energetic, everything is loud. And then you turn to a street and you are in a, some kind of village. And I think that's, uh, it's fun. It's fun. How many people live in blocks of flats in Bucharest? More or less, we could uh, we could be sure that about 70% of the people in Bucharest live in this kind of housing. And I think the first thing that uh, somebody has to, to, to get when you speak about uh, housing in socialist countries is that it's not social housing. That should be stated uh, in a very powerful way because social housing is housing that is subsidized by the government for... Uh, certain social categories and communities which have problems having their own home. Of course, that was also the case in this socialist housing with some of these blocks. But the main idea is that it was housing for everybody. Especially in Romania, you didn't have any legal alternative to build or very few legal alternatives to build individual houses. It was, uh, after a certain point, I think it was also uh, forbidden. But some of this socialist housing was done by, uh, built through credit. So people took credit in what we could have a credit in this socialist system. And then they had their own apartment as a property, even then. Housing and the city and urbanism and architecture were tools to build this new society. And so they, uh, they were very ideological and very politicized. And this was the idea, which makes for some very interesting de developments. On the one hand, you have in all of these neighborhoods, you have a, a, a mixed city that was never achieved in Western countries in social housing. Because you really had the doctor and the worker and the policeman and the teacher living in the same building in practically the same apartment because you, you couldn't have it otherwise. But regardless of the architectural typology, always what it is also very important is that even if the buildings and now everything is private in this building because they have privatized, the land is public. And this is extremely different from, let's say, the more traditional, the capitalist city in which you have very clear plots and you have private land and public land. And then you have the way that people transform this land, even if it's not theirs in, a, in an administrative, uh, in a legal meaning. And this means that this blank slate in which you have these buildings on, it's actually also changed and it becomes a kind of disjointed puzzle of individual territories. But uh, legally it's like that. It has to be said that it now for this kind of buildings now represent communism for most of the people. If they think in a symbolic way, when they say block, they, they mean this kind of, of blocks. So it's the representation of communism. As funny as it sounds for the architects, especially they thought of it as a Western model. My father worked at Rumutabere. He was an architect too, was a very young architect. He did the urban plan with a colleague. And they had done, they had had their school in the 1950s, some in their socialist realism, which they hated. And for them at the beginning of the 60s with this liberalization period, they actually, for them it was to do these blocks of flats in greenery. It was not doing socialism, it was doing it like in the West. 
And they had actually Swedish magazines, and you had people sent to in Europe to 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 look at how things are done with prefab uh, fabrications and so on. And of course, they went to France, but they also went to the northern countries because northern countries were so strong on this kind of uh, of thing. So it's a. I think it's funny that what is today seen by the population as a symbol of communism was for the architects at that time. A symbol of liberalization and of reconnection with the West and of reconnection with the modern modernist tradition in uh, in Bucharest. We have sent um, research packs and sending letters, writing cards, you know, having all this materiality and contact with the people, with our participants. So. One of them um, sent to us back syllable dust bag full with um, dust that he collected from his window. He lives in this block which is facing uh, Grivica Boulevard with a lot of traffic. And uh, I think it's interesting to try to include the fact that the quality of of the life of the people who are living in in these blocks and in these apartments is not only something that has to do with you know the structure of the building with the type of apartment with um, maintenance but also with the quality of air with the space surrounding the block and with you know the city as an organism some people say there are more cars in bucharest than people It has to do also, of course, with public policy and the lack of, let's say, the perfect uh, public transportation and bike lanes and all the rest, but also with this uh, obsession with cars. And they are definitely more important than everything. So there are people, I know of cases you have to look in which people ask themselves for the authorities to come and cut down trees because uh, there are birds sitting in those trees and which are trashing their cars, you know. So <laughs> it's it's obvious where the priority, social priorities are. The city cannot take care. I mean, there, there is no parking space possible to have for all these cars. I mean, even if you would like to, it would be it would be impossible. So we will have to shift uh, to something else. But what can I say? It's it's uh, cars are taking over green space. The cars are taking over sidewalks. You ask them why do you park there, and they say, but there's no no place else to to park. What can I do? Uh, you know, they are very sincere. They say, I know it's not a good thing, but it's like it's a kind of Greek tragedy, fate thing, you know. They they have to park there because there's no nobody gives them a good parking spot. And so they have to park on the on the sidewalk. The, uh, there, there was a lack of the municipality will to do this, but it's also the lack of will is it has to do with populism, because if you touch cars, you're uh, you're getting big problems. But I think mainly it's because those people in charge, from starting from the government to to the last guy in the administration, they're totally into it. So they really believe that they they, they believe in this car. So so they, they they can't understand why should should they work against the car because it's it's not the way they feel and they do themselves. And this goes from a national strategy that has completely left out the railway because the railway in Romania is for poor people. That's uh, people who don't own a car. Well, for me, it's fascinating that uh, that uh, you see people today. On the one hand, they have this sustainability discourse, and on the other hand, they're totally into the 
what was hot and what was good in the 1950s and 60s. And, and, uh, but in Bucharest, as, they, as well in all other socialist countries, you know very well that they privatized everything in the 90s. So we are a society of owners. I think in Romania, 95% of the people own their house, which is enormous. Here, everybody owns them and they're all on the market. So this adds a new layer because their attractiveness is very different. And you have two, for me, there are two basic factors when you buy an apartment uh, here in Bucharest that you look after is the earthquake is one because people have started to see that. And then the position, the location is the other. And, and you have the same kind of, uh, let's say, concrete panel prefab block type A built in 1975. If one is in a neighborhood which is further away from the center, then maybe its price is two thirds of the one located in the central area. So I think that what happens is a kind of uh, hidden ghettoization in which people, which the richer they become, they tend to, even if you talk only about the socialist blocks of less, they tend to move towards the center. And people who are older and cannot afford to live there anymore are moving more and more to the outskirts. If everything is in private property, but people are going to be poorer and poorer, the ones that are going to be to have this property. So how can you intervene and what kind of mechanism do you find to, 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 to aid poor people which own their house, which is something completely different from council estates in, uh, in England or, uh, or, in, or in Norway? How do you deal with this kind of ghettoization, which is, is not really discussed now, but which is undergoing in this, uh, how should I say, stealth? Uh, wait for a lot of time. I'm also interested in this topic on, on property, um, especially in relation to the aging of blocks and the fact that, you know, in the eventuality of um, other and other major earthquakes, I'm going to share with you some some materials from my research. I brought with me a letter that one of the participants in Berchen wrote in this research box. Manuela Aristotel in, uh, in Berchen answers the following when asked to say what worries her. She said, a possible new major earthquake similar to the one in 1977, uh, which shook seriously Bucharest from the ground. It, it can happen that blocks that were built in the 60s, early 60s, might be heavily affected. So what happens to all the people who own a flat? Yeah. It's an urgent thing. It's actually a disaster. We tend to focus on the ones in the 30s because they're the most endangered one, once. And, and this is true. I mean, it's uh, the risk if you live in a 1930s building is much larger than if you live in a socialist block of flats, of course. It's clear that she's a very sensible lady. I think you really have to ask and to push and to ask them about uh, what do you think about the common spaces and what do you think about what would happen with, with the line around the blocks. A lot of times we, we also ask them when, when we had this kind of you know, our research and the, most of people answered we need more parking space. Even old people which didn't own a car, they said, look, all these cars need space. It's, uh, it's <laughs> and uh, no, nobody told us about needing a uh, or maybe one in one in twenty uh, sometimes say that they need uh, that they would like to have a, a communal space or a new park and something like that. Most of them really are really into this kind of car 
thinking into, into their own into their own little problems, which is a disaster because everybody makes their own improvements in their apartment and usually they stop at the front door. And you sometimes in a block of flats, which where the hallway looks like like horrible, it really looks like a very, very bad space. And you would think that people living there are really at the bottom of society. And then you get into the apartment and it's like Alibaba's cavern. Everything is clean. But actually, when you get on the ground, it, it's, it's a puzzle of very, very different areas. Some which are completely let down. Others are occupied by cars. Cars are more important in Bucharest than people. And some are turned, turned into gardens and, uh, and things like that. Uh, the problem is for any kind of rehabilitation is that you have to bring people together. And that is the case of Romanian society today, that nobody wants to do something together with the others. We are still in this kind of uh, of pendulum movement from, uh, you know, everything was uh, had to be supported, so total authority to nobody's authority. And you have this explosion of individualism that started in the 90s, and we're very, we're completely in it. So everybody would like to do every improvement they could on their own thing but not to do something with the others. It's, it's still felt that if you do something together with others, it's kind of a waste of money. So how can you bring to make a rehabilitation like they did in Germany or the, like they do in, uh, in Britain? When you have one owner, it's, it's quite easy. You know, it's not easy because of the money, but it's quite easy in a way. What do you have when you have hundreds of owners? Thank you for listening to the Disobedient Buildings podcast edited by Anna Anderson and produced by Jack Sopper. If you want to hear more, go to our website www.disobedientbuildings.com or search for our podcast where you normally find your podcasts. In the next episode, Anna Ulrike Anderson takes you to Oslo to speak with Makers Hub founders Else Abramson and Jack Hughes. What is the impact of participatory urban design projects for young people?